This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Hold True Tattoo Studios. The new studio is now open in Hamilton, and if you're interested in getting any tattoo work done or discussing any designs, please contact the chief artist, Brian Bell. You can find Hold True Tattoo Studios on Instagram and on Facebook, so if you're at all interested, please check them out. Okay, everyone, uh, super excited, as always, to welcome you to the, the podcast today. This is a conversation that I've actually been looking forward to speaking to you, Grandmaster Cook, for many years, and the podcast has given us a wonderful a wonderful opportunity to, to finally do that. So uh, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Uh, what I'll do, sir, is I will... Uh, introduce you to the the listeners to the show, and then we can we can hopefully get into the conversation, if if that's okay. It's lovely to see you in your uh, fantastic dojang setting as well today. Yeah, this is we just finished a class about uh, ten minutes ago, as a matter of fact. Fantastic, fantastic. I'm all warmed up. You ready yeah. to train? <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Absolutely, sir. Absolutely. Please, please, one day. Please, one day we can we can organise that. Uh, I'd love to do that. Yep. Uh, okay, everyone. So I'm joined today by uh, Grandmaster Doug Cook, who is an eighth degree black belt. Uh, he is the owner and chief instructor at the Chosun Taekwondo Academy in uh, New York, and uh, you're now president of the uh, United States Taekwondo Association. Yes, the USTA. That was. Uh an organization that was uh, founded in 1980 by my late teacher, Grandmaster Richard Chun. Uh, and it was in accordance with the fact that uh, Grandmaster Chun was assisting Dr. Eun-Yong Kim with the uh, creation of the World Taekwondo Federation, as you know it then. And when he returned to America, the national governing body for Taekwondo uh, was known as the United States Taekwondo Union. Yep. And that job had been taken, so Grandmaster Chun decided to create a separate entity that um, catered to the traditional side of Taekwondo, you know? Yep. And uh, thus, that was the origins of the United States Taekwondo Association. And the mission of the USTA is to promote excellence in the traditional and evolving art of Taekwondo. So it's not a provincial organization whereby we put blinders on. Yep, yep. Things that are happening, you know, in the future, but its main mission is to maintain the traditional relevance of Taekwondo. That's that's one thing that I'll bring up later in the conversation, actually, which I, I really want to to talk to you about is uh, just as you say there, not having blinders from following your work for for many years now. It's one of the it's one of the things that truly stands out about you, sir, is your. Uh, your willingness and this uh, this view of, of encompassing all areas and all styles of Taekwondo in your uh, in your promotion really uh, you're you're not you're not certainly not one for for simply focusing on your own style or your own association but but one of of encompassing all all areas of Taekwondo. You know uh, I know you're familiar with as most. Uh, 
worthy practitioners around the world with Dr. George Vitale. Yeah, yes, sir. Uh, and Dr. Vitale is a very good friend of mine. He, he not only a good friend, but a very supportive one as well. Uh, he pops up in the strangest places. In fact, um, um, quite a few years ago, I was presented with an award for my books by the Korean government and was called to Washington, D.C. to their embassy to accept it. And I was very, very honored. It was, and still to this day, it's one of the greatest honors I've had. And I was there with several other uh, practitioners who also qualified for that honor. And uh, I look out in the audience, and who's sitting there but Dr. Vitale. And he had come all the way down to Washington, D.C., you know. Yes, sir. Um, also, other times when I spoke at the Korea Society here in New York, uh, he would be there to support me as well. And uh, as Dr. Vitale is noted for saying, we have more in common in Taekwondo than we do have differences. And, uh, you know, a statement like that can be so mild in its apparent uh, superficial context. Yeah. But when you think about the weight of that statement in the world today, in the world strife that is going on, particularly in our country, in the United States right now, of course, uh, everybody can take that to heart and, and practice it in a real way. But it's certainly, since this is uh, what we're focusing on is Taekwondo, whether you are um, a member of the Action International Martial Arts uh, Association or whether you're a member of the ITF exclusively or the WT or Kuki Taekwondo or Chosun or USDA, you know, our basic vocabulary and technique is the same. Yes. Uh, so we have many, many things to build on communally rather than separately. Absolutely, sir. Uh, I always, I really hope that we can spend some time later in the conversation discussing uh, Grandmaster uh, Chun and Grandmaster Cho, of course, as well. Uh, I'll never forget on one of Grandmaster Cho's visits to Scotland, he was conducting a seminar with many different associations and uh, during his, his talk at the end of the, the seminar, he said, uh, train together, learn together. And it was the message that he was, uh, he, he was trying to share to AMA members, ITF members, uh, Taekwondo Association of Great Britain members. There was members from lots of different associations and it was really a, really a point that he, he really tried to, to spread well, whilst he was teaching. Uh, yeah. Regarding sort of the, the current events uh, and, and not so much the political events in, in the United States at the moment, but the worldwide uh, events of, of COVID, one of the things that I've really enjoyed is reading your messages on social media uh, as a traditional grandmaster and trying to, to guide not only your own students, but the wider Taekwondo community through this difficult time that we've had over the last 10 months or so. Mm. Uh, how, has how do you feel Taekwondo has helped you personally and the members of your school get through this difficult time? It, it's been very difficult. And I'm, I must tell you that um, I feel very, very strongly towards you, towards Master Ainslow, uh, towards all the UK schools and students who have gone through, I believe this is your third lockdown now, am I right? 
I believe so. <laughs> yeah, and it's hard, you start to lose count after a, a certain amount of time. And I know uh, how difficult it is. You know, what we do in Taekwondo, especially traditional Taekwondo, is very strange to begin with. It's a very weird thing that we do, you know, yeah. to get people to put on uniforms and, and take uh, worth in belts, to get up and have them come to attention and bow to us, you know, as instructors. It's very strange to begin with, and people sometimes look at it as a cult, which clearly it isn't, and anybody watching this video knows that it's not. It's much, much more than anything even remotely than that. Um, so being faced with a global pandemic on top of that, on top of the struggles that we normally go through to promote our schools, has been earth-shattering. It's been seismic proportions, you know. Um, but we have one thing as an ally that most people don't, and that's true indomitable spirit yes. and perseverance. You know, uh, if you are a white belt, if you are a yellow belt or a green belt or orange belt, whatever, you're still learning those virtues. In fact, you're still learning those virtues up at purple belt, red belt level, right? Yeah. But once you become a black belt, your life changes. This is a license to learn, not a permit to quit. Yes, sir. That's what this is. And we, just like university students, need to take responsibility for our own training. No more as a color belt are we simply holding our students' hands. We must let them go at some point and start finding their own true nature as a martial artist, right? So fortunately, we're cultivating this indomitable will and this perseverance to begin with. So we have an ally in this terrible time. Yeah. So in our case, and uh, since to answer your question directly, uh, in our case at Chosun, uh, my wife, who is my great-great-grandmaster, uh, you know, <laughs> yes. as yours is, I'm sure. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, helped me make my decision to go online literally a day after our lockdown last March. The day the government said to lockdown, we went directly online. Now, we were fortunate in that we have a gentleman who handles all our IT needs. It's an expensive proposition, but we, he handles all our internet information. And so we gave this gentleman a call. It's Walling Road International Technologies. And um, he came right in with uh, his iPad. He came in with uh, uh, all the stands and everything we needed. And we went right on to Zoom immediately. Yeah. So we literally lost maybe one day of training and we were back online again. Now. The Zoom platform is the biggest dojang in the world. I Indeed. think we can say yeah. that with some confidence, right? I knew nothing about it. In fact, I'm still learning a lot about it, breakout rooms and all this type of thing. But I do have a technical background in professional audio. That was another profession I was in for many years. So it didn't chase me away. It was drawn, I was drawn to it. You know, I wanted to learn more about it. So over the course of the months, we upped our technological capabilities with better cameras, bigger screens, better computers, lighting equipment, uh, to the point now where I feel that we can present and broadcast a, a, a class that's worthy of a student actually imagining that they're here in the dojang, right? Yeah. So rather than diminish our online presence, we increased it dramatically. And during the... Uh, six or seven months that we were forced to lock down, we never really lost uh, any, any steam whatsoever. I would have uh, three or four classes a day, seven days a week. 
Um, I would teach them myself for the most part, although in the morning I would have an assistant and in the evening I would have an assistant. Yep. And the three of us uh, were trustworthy enough where we didn't have a mask on. You can see I don't have a mask on right yeah, now. Yeah. That's because there's nobody here but my wife. Of course. But, but um, so we embraced the Zoom platform. Thank goodness for Zoom, right? Yeah. We embraced that. Uh, and then as soon as the lockdown was over, people just could not wait to get back into the dojang, as you can well imagine. Yeah. So we, uh, uh, we had... Uh, uh, restrictions involved. Uh, we had a mask requirement. We still do. Uh, social distance, uh, you can't see it, but we have marks all over the floor of the dojang here, yep. for six foot minimum. Uh, there's sanitizing stations all over the dojang. We sanitize between each class, spray, spraying doors and handles. And, and uh, we have automatic uh, hand, hand sanitizer machines. And we've limited the amount of people per class, you yeah. know. Yep. So we've managed now to have a dichotomy whereby we have safe Indojang classes that are simulcast at the same time. Okay, great. So all my students are facing the front the way we would normally face a class. And then if you look at our schedule online, you'll see we have blocked out black uh, spaces where we have exclusive online classes where I'm facing the way I'm facing you right now with the screen okay. to my back, with the uh, front to my back. And I have other students who come in for that class. They can do that. But mainly I'm addressing my online students. Right, yeah. So uh, we have this juxtaposition between uh, exclusive live stream class and then simulcast classes that are shown here in the Dojang. With that being said, yes, I've lost quite a few students. Okay. But I've lost those students based on the fact that they just cannot handle the online presence yeah. And it's too fearful to come out of their homes. Yeah. Uh, I cannot force them to do that. Yeah. It would be irresponsible of me to do that. I um, exhort them to come out and not, not fall into the trap, you know, do the best they can with the yeah. safety uh, restrictions we have here in the school. But this is truly a world event that is very, very scary and very, very dangerous. And you must be empathetic to all your students. 100%, 100%. Uh, one of the little notes that I, I took whilst you were talking there, sir, was you you said that uh, Taekwondo was, was an ally for us, and that's actually such a wonderful way to, to address that. It's I wonder how personally I would have coped with the changes if it weren't for 30 years of Taekwondo experience behind me. Uh, Maybe, maybe from a personal point of view, how has the art helped you mentally, uh, physically, obviously, to, to work your way through the problems that have, have come up over the last 10 months or so? Yeah, it's a good question. Very introspective, you know. Um, you know, one of the reasons I think back to the days, people ask me this often, how did you get involved in the martial arts? I'm sure they ask the same thing to you. Yes, yeah. Um, and... I grew up in a, a section of New York called Brooklyn, which many okay. people have heard. Yep. And it was a pretty rough and tumble section, you know. It was a nice section. I liked my youth. It was, it was a nice place to grow up. But there were always fights. There were school fights and that in schoolyards, and you were always being called out and things like this. Uh, and then, of course, I matured and grew up, and no one would get in any fights. You know, when you get older, you just don't get in fights. And yeah. um, 
hopefully. And um, uh, then I had a family. You know, I had two beautiful daughters who were twins and a beautiful wife. And I thought to myself one day, because I got involved in the martial arts late in life. I wasn't a child when I became involved. Okay. And I said, what would happen if something uh, threatened us? Would I be able to defend myself? You know, and I, and I started ruminating on that. Uh, and then one day a friend of mine asked me uh, if I would be interested in becoming involved in a martial arts class that they were going to start. And I said, hmm, martial arts, man, that's intriguing, mainly because of the philosophical aspects of it. Okay, that's what yeah. really, you know. So I did get involved, and I was hooked from the first day. I knew this is something I wanted to do. Um, I remember my teacher asking me, and this was a good, a good thing to do, and all teachers should do this, First day a student starts, ask them what their goal is. It doesn't have to be a big, long conversation. And I said I wanted to build a quiet confidence. That's what I wanted to do. So the more I got involved in, in uh, the martial arts, and I didn't know, like many people, I would imagine, I didn't know Taekwondo at the time. All I knew I was getting involved in a martial art. Now, I should have done a little bit more investigation, but I didn't. Yeah. You know, I, I, I asked my students to do investigation, but I didn't. It, it might have been jujutsu, it might have been tang sudo, it might have been karate do, it might have been aikido, who knows? Yeah. Uh, fortunately, taekwondo was perfect for me in almost every way, right? Now, the more I got involved in the art, I had a very strong thirst for the ex intellectual aspects of it. So I started doing a lot of research on Korea. Mm -hmm. That's when I realized that this was more than just a physical art. I looked at the Korean people and the, um, the uh, uh, adversity that they went through over the years with invading pirates, with warring kingdoms, yeah. with uh, in, uh, uh, imperialistic domination, with civil strife, world wars, internal strife from their own government, you know, mm -hmm. and looked at that community today and realized that's the 11th strongest uh, economy in the world. Now, how did they do that? Yeah. How did they raise themselves out of the ashes of the Second World War and the Korean conflict, which left everything decimated? Yeah. And as you know, from 1910 to 1945, the Korea was annexed by Japan, and yeah. all vestiges of their culture was subdued. You know, children couldn't go to good schools. Books were burned. They had to change their names to Japanese names. Yeah. Their women were used as comfort women. Right? Yeah. So how did they how did they take themselves? What is the element of their society? Of course, bolstered by the three Asian paradigms of Buddhism, Taoism, and Confucianism, what made their their society so um, resilient, right? And if you want to boil that down and to dis distill it down into a couple of words, I think, as General Chase said in the five tenets of Taekwondo, indomitable spirit. Yeah. Refuse to being crushed, refuse to being defeated. So with that in mind, and, and when I write about and when I talk about these cultures and the facts of Taekwondo, it's not my lips moving, it's my heart beating. That's what it is. It's me feeling these things uh, sincerely. So in answer to your question, how personally have, has Taekwondo helped me? Every morning I wake up, I think of those two words, indomitable spirit, right? Yeah. There's mornings when I don't want to get up. There's mornings or evenings when I read an email from a student says they're flagging, you know, they're getting ready to leave, they can't. So, yep. That I say, no, be strong, you're the motivator, you're the umbrella under which these people come 
for comfort. Don't give up. Never give up. Keep going. And I guess more than anything else, that's really how Taekwondo has helped me personally deal with this. Uh, again, everything that you've said so far, uh, I, I, I can agree with one million percent. The, our, our students that we're so lucky to have, uh, I always feel that it's a complete 50-50 relationship. Uh, and I think, or I doubt, they, they really know just how motivating their journey can be to their instructor or master or, or grandmaster. Uh, it was never an option for me to give up in any way during this last year. It just wasn't an option for the two reasons that you've maybe touched on. The, the fact that, uh, well, three reasons actually, because I can never get away from the representing Grandmaster Cho element either. So uh, if I quit anything uh, in my Taekwondo journey, I see that as a reflection on, on, or a disrespect to his leadership. So that's the first thing I would say. Uh, the indomitable spirit, of course, but then that, that thing about picking yourself up every day to be there for your, your students and your members, that's, mm. I can't stress that enough how important they are to us. You know, uh, here in America, they talk about essential workers. I guess it's the same. Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah. Daughter, right. We talk about my daughter is a RN. She's a nurse. Yes. She's uh, right out there on the front lines, and I worry about her every day. She just first got her uh, first inoculation the other day with the Moderna. Oh, fantastic. And, uh, and um, you know, I'm glad and I'm nervous about that at the same time. Okay. Um, but, you know, people wouldn't agree with this universally, but I view you uh, you know, Master Amaris, myself, as essential workers, because we are motivating our students to be in a better place than they could possibly be, left alone to their own devices. And I'm sure many of them would have, find some outlet that might work, because they are strong people. But being in the community of Taekwondo, being in the, in the cyberspace community of Taekwondo, they have a certain solace that they can gain from their training, and you know that's got to be helpful. Yeah. So you are absolutely right. I mean, I feel that we're essential workers for our students. Uh, bringing up Grandmaster Heel Cho, sure. I think that everyone in the Taekwondo community, regardless of affiliation, uh, can realize the huge contributions he's made and the inspiration that he's given all of us, again, regardless of of uh, affiliation. You, Grandmaster Philip Mamaris, and the other masters underneath him uh, are beacons to all of us on loyalty to your master. Because I see your social media posts. I see Grandmaster uh, Grandmaster uh social media posts. And we've always been in touch because of my books and things like that. Yes, sir. Yep. Um, I don't know how many of the young upcoming masters will be that uh, close in allegiance to their grandmasters, the way I was with Grandmaster Chun, still am. Yes, sir. And the way you gentlemen certainly are with Grandmaster Cho. Um, it, it goes far beyond just loyalty. 
you know, it's, it, it goes to the point of you being, uh, them being the venerable master and you the worthy disciple. So That's essentially what we are as disciples of these great men. Yeah. And you are under their shadow. And most people would say a blossom can't grow under a shadow. But that's not true because we gain our strength from these men. So by you alluding to the fact that you couldn't even consider abbreviating your Taekwondo training because it would be a reflection on Grandmaster Cho is, an, is a, a direct proportion of your desire and your loyalty to, to someone and your deep meaning to Taekwondo because of that. You know, it, it's good that you bring something that up because not a lot of people feel that these days. The, the other, the other, I see three main uh, stalwarts of, of Grandmaster Cho's Taekwondo, and they are, of course, Grandmaster Cho himself, uh, Grandmaster Philip Ramirez, and our own Grandmaster here in, in Europe, uh, Grandmaster John Darcy. Mm -hmm. And to look at, I, I would not be where I am in martial arts or Indeed, I would not be where I am in life if it weren't for, first of all, Grandmaster John Darcy, who is a, a European a Grandmaster and representative, and obviously in turn then Grandmaster Cho. Uh, it's definitely something that we forget very quickly nowadays. And, and maybe that maybe now is the time to, for us possibly to have a chat about Grandmaster Richard Chun and, and Grandmaster Cho and, and maybe exchange some stories about both gentlemen. Uh -huh. uh, I, I, I can say for sure that, I, as I say, I, I wouldn't be where I am today if it weren't for, for the lessons and the, the opportunities that those, those gentlemen have given me. Uh, so it's, it's something that's just ingrained within me that, I'll give you a, a very quick example. And, I'm, I'm, I'm probably stepping on your interview at the moment uh, by, by talking too much, but in, in EMA we have, we have coloured uniforms. So Grandmaster Cho would always be in the blue uniform and uh, Master Darcy here in Europe would have the blue uniform. So if any, anyone in rank up to that degree, they can't be in the blue uniform at the same time as the present Grandmaster. Uh, I don't have a blue uniform, even though I would have the right to wear one in my own dojang, because in my head, that's Grandmaster Darcy's uniform and it's Grandmaster Cho's uniform. And as I say, I, I have the, the right to wear one in my school, but it just doesn't sit right to me. Uh, I, I, I just can't bring myself to do it. So anyway. Very humble. Well... Maybe I've had good teachers. <laughs> I've had good teachers. Uh, let's have a wee uh, talk about the grandmasters, then, uh, particularly Grandmaster uh, Chun, who was your, your your own instructor. Can you tell us a little bit about about him? Oh, you know, <laughs> it, it's it's kind of hard to talk about him a little bit because I miss him so much. Of course, there's so much that comes up during class that I want to still ask him. Um, technical things, uh, emotional things, and uh, business things, you know. Uh, but I can tell you one story in particular that'll, that'll frame anything else I want to say about him. And this really goes to show you the disciple uh, 
venerable master image, you know, but uh, it was one day in October, three years ago, when he was getting near the end of his life. And he called me and told me to come to his home, which I had been to many, many times. And um, my wife and I drove down to his home, and he was sitting in a chair, um, all bundled up in pajamas and a robe. And you can tell he was ill, very ill. Yeah. And um, his wife was sitting in another chair off to the side. And that's when he said, Doug, I want you to take over the USTA. I want you to run it, you know. And I had told him many times before that I didn't feel worthy. I felt he had other seniors who would be best suited to do that. And his words were, no, you are the business person. You can do it. And you need to do it on your own. And you need to do it regardless who comes and complains and you know, any kind of jealousies or anything like this. And this happens in the martial arts. You see it in the ITF when General Che died, you know. Um, and I was overcome. And I went to him. It was a classic image. I went to him and I knelt down in front of him and I took his hand and I kissed it, you know. Yeah. And uh, everybody had tears in their eyes. My wife, his wife, he did, I did. But... The point is, from that time forward, I was invested with something from him. Maybe it was a transmission. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe it was a mystical transmission, the way it's supposed to be, where I said, he is now gone, and now it's up to me to make the decisions. I need to be responsible for those decisions. I need to be clear-headed. I need to be accountable, and I need to be wise. Now, having said that, <laughs> I have a proclivity for moving ahead at full steam. I, I am either on or I'm off. That's yeah. the way my personality is. So several months later, we meet his wife for lunch, you know, after everything calmed down a little bit. Patty, my wife, and I, and Mrs. Chun met for lunch. And she said that her daughter had a dream, and Grandmaster Chun had said regard, regarding me and my school, don't be hasty. And she said, to, that was my message. I was supposed to, she was supposed to tell me that, okay, not yeah, to yeah. be hasty, you know. <laughs> so my wife looked at me and she said, uh-huh, I told you, you know, because I'm always moving ahead. So that's another thing that I need to do is think through things a little bit more, right? Now, the only reason I bring that up is because you asked me about the relationship I shared with him. Um, it was a very, very good, but very professional relationship. Mm -hmm. You know, we got close emotionally, but mainly professionally. And uh, in taking over the United States Taekwondo Association, when I held the memorial for him here, because we had a very big memorial with a couple of hundred martial arts from all over the world came, yep. Mexico, all over the United States, uh, uh, Europe came for the memorial. Uh, I stood up and I said a few words. But then I did something that I'm so happy that I did because I had certain uh, martial artists who had come who were direct students of his get up and speak about their relationship with him. Well, wouldn't you know that every single one of them had a story that was so personal and yeah. so charged that you would think that there would be no one else that he could have spoken to like that. So what that told me was Grandmaster Chun had a, a, a real innate talent to make every student he ever spoke to 
feel like they were the only student who he ever had. Yeah, yeah. Those, those stories were so special. How do you do that? I mean, how do you shift one's focus and, and uh, categorize it to make each person feel that special? Quite frankly, I don't have that talent. I don't think I do. But uh, our relationship was a very strong one. He would tell me so many good stories while we were traveling the back roads of Korea together on a bus, yeah. uh, sometimes swearing me to secrecy because of the sensitivity of those yeah, stories. Yeah. But, uh, you know, about the Mudaquan and things like this, the past history. So um, just like you said about Grandmaster Cho, there is absolutely no question in my mind that Chosun would never be the school it is today. The USTA obviously would have probably just passed on away, right? Um, I mean, we have things like this that we've done now. You've seen this. This is Hunlian Magazine. Yep, yep. You know? This is the journal of the United States Taekwondo Association that many, uh, that Grandmaster Cho was uh, featured in, not this article, the last edition. Yep, yep. Um, and I thank you all for doing that. Thank you so much for that. that I can't tell you how much that meant to us. Um, and so we're promoting the USTA to keep Grandmaster Chun's legacy alive. And as you know, I have the USTA Pumse series now on the first and third Sunday of every month, yeah. where worldwide we're proliferating his forms, just his forms. And regardless of Dan level, whether you're a first on, seventh on, uh, you, you are offered the forms as Grandmaster Chun taught them, forms that in, one, in the words of one of the students who are taking advantage of the series, are an endangered species. Yep. That's what they are. They're forms yep. that will eventually disappear. Uh, not that we're the only protectors of them, but sometimes I mention them to other teachers and, and they have no idea what I'm talking about. So yep. I know that these forms are very precious heirlooms, right? That they're inheritances. That we that 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 is my now responsibility to promote and keep alive. So uh, I, I'm, I'm very reluctant to say it because I don't want to seem like I have hubris or something like that. But I feel that in a way, Grandmaster Chun was right when he appointed me the sole successor yeah. to the USTA because I take it that seriously. Yeah. This yeah. is my job. This is my profession. This is my life. Yeah. You know, I, I don't go out the door to an accounting job. I don't go out the door because well, a plumber. I'm not, you know, those things are wonderful jobs. But this is my profession. Yeah. And it's my profession 24 hours a day. My wife can tell you, last night, I just got a new book from the KTA on hand techniques. Okay. Right? Yeah. And here I am at night reading the book, you know, because <laughs> that's what we do. Yeah. That's what you and I do. That's what Grandmaster Maris does, Grandmaster Darcy. That's what we do because that's our job. One of the things that you, one of the things, we can touch on two things, hopefully here at the same time. Uh, one is, and you've mentioned this a couple of times, and it was uh, Grandmaster uh, Chun's, and in fact, any of the original or older generation grandmasters, uh, their traditional taekwondo. So I want to ask you in a wee second about what you think traditional means, what is traditional mm. taekwondo, and the other part of that, which might be connected and might not be as when I look at someone like Grandmaster Cho and uh, Grandmaster Chun or Nam Tihe or uh, any of these original Korean Grandmasters, do they stand alone 
over and above the rest of us. Now, you've reached the rank of Grandmaster, and uh, who knows, it may be in my future, I very much doubt it, and, and don't think I would ever actually be deserving of the title uh, when I look at the people who have gone before me. But they were special, special men, I, I feel. And that's no disrespect to any of the rest of us, but were they different? And how can we maintain that tradition that they gave us? I think that's one big question. No, no, that's a... <laughs> You know, I, I, first of all, number one, thank you for doing this because, because this needs to be done. Uh, one of my students had asked me to do it for several weeks during our lockdown. Sure. It was called Ask the Grandmaster. It sounded a little pretentious, but that's what he wanted to do. So we did about four or five segments, and then we opened up again and we stopped. But it was a way for me to speak philosophically to my students or anybody who wanted to see it. It's online on YouTube. Uh, worldwide so anybody can see it but the point was you were able to spend some time that you don't usually have during class to yeah. go through it so what you're doing right now is such a worthy thing and I thank you for this that's mm -hmm. number one number two you should be um, Wolf Blitzer on CNN you're a very <laughs> good interviewer you ask the right questions I don't know in in Scotland who the big broadcaster <laughs> you should be that person um, Thank you. Asking, asking the definition, or, or let's put it in a different way, demystifying what we define traditional Taekwondo is, is really important because, look, a, a student, just like I did, or like I said earlier, you walk into a school, you sign up to study martial arts, and sometimes you don't know anything about what you're getting yourself into. You know you're getting yourself into martial arts, but not sure what, what it's all about. Now, Taekwondo, we can boil that down to another level and say, what kind of Taekwondo are you getting involved in? Now, we know pretty much that we can define it down into two points. Yeah. Just like a coin, it has two sides, right? One is the Olympic sport or competitive combat art of Taekwondo, and the other is the traditional martial art of Taekwondo. Now, what does that mean, right? When I uh, describe traditional Taekwondo to potential students, I explain to them about the, the Olympic uh, sport of Taekwondo, and then I tell them that Chosun and the USTA features a type of martial art that was practiced during the 40s, 50s, 60s, uh, before the globalization in sport of Taekwondo became, you know, yep. the Olympic yep, sport. Yeah, for sure. The type of Taekwondo that focused on self-defense, that focused on self-enrichment and physical fitness. Now, if you start saying more than that, you usually start losing them. But, you yeah. know, for you and I and for your students and the listeners of this podcast, I think we can go a little bit further and say that uh, the curriculum that was taught during the original five institutes or Kwan's, right? Yeah. You know, the Changmu Kwan, the Songmu Kwan, uh, 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 the Muda Kwan, you know, the Yunmu Kwan, those original schools uh, were obviously focused on, on uh, Hyung. Yep. You know, or Pumse. Pumse is a modern name, so I stick to the word young, right? They focused on um, various uh, types of self-defense, whether it be Il Sushi Deiran, which, uh, you know, is an older term for a Hanban Jirugi now, yep. uh, Samban Jirugi or Sam Sushi Deiran, you know. They focused on Hoshin Sul, self-defense, grab techniques, right? Yep. They focused a strong illumination on basics, stepping basics, you know. 
I watch videos from uh, the Mudaquan that were digitized, mm -hmm. and these men would spend. And unfortunately, it was men. Yeah, you know, there were very few women, but thank goodness we have that today. But the point is, um, they would spend long hours on basics, just really fine tuning and and uh, perfecting basics. You know, there would be a great deal of ritual involved as far as uh, proper respect and bows. You know. Uh, uniforms were worn when available, uh, and it was a very hard style of training, right? Yeah. So when I talk about traditional Taekwondo, that's the type of all-encompassing uh, curriculum. Uh, I look at take, Taekwondo, traditional Taekwondo as a mosaic, and it has all these different components to it. Yeah. And if you, any one of those components are missing, it's like a puzzle missing a part, right? Yeah. Then we take the, the sportive side of Taekwondo, and you know what that's all about. I mean, you're learning some very quick uh, kicks, some um, uh, baljiki, some footwork techniques, yeah. uh, you know, for competitive purposes to win the medal, to take the trophy home. And I think that about three or four years ago, it might have been a bit longer, uh, Master Juan Moreno, do you remember who he is, Juan Moreno? Hey, the he name rings a bell, sir, for sure, yeah. First silver medalist in America to get uh, okay, yeah, yeah, silver medal. He was a young, a young man then. Yeah. Now he's grown up, but he has his own dojang in California, and he said something that I really applaud him for. He said, "We don't teach martial artists here; we teach athletes." Okay. Right. right. So it wasn't even though they're doing taekwondo, they weren't teaching them self-defense. They were teaching them the fast footwork, the dodging the leg work that requires strong kicking, but yep. they weren't focusing on forms, they weren't focusing on hand techniques, they weren't focusing on uh, throws or sweeps because they just, they don't count in the ring. Yeah. Those things are forfeited altogether, right, in yeah. favor of gold. So he made the pronouncement, and rightly so, and students should be told that, you're gonna be an athlete here, you're not necessarily gonna be a martial artist. I don't wanna create a schism but there is one, and you may as well recognize it yeah. and, and respect it, you know? Yeah. So certainly that's, that's my definition of traditional Taekwondo, and that's what we do. The second part of your question about the Grand Masters, right? Um, okay, so we have Grand Master Richard Chun. We have Grand Master Henry Cho, Sisak Henry Cho. We have Grand Master um, Sundok Sun, yeah. uh, Daisha Kim. Um, uh, heel Cho, you know, all these great masters, right? What separates them from us aside from their nationality? I mean, yes, they were all Koreans, right? Now, I come back to what I initially said about the culture and the um, social fabric of Korea during the 1940s and 50s. Yeah. Um, what these men went through as children are hard to describe. I know Grandmaster Chun had to flee Seoul with three other families on a wooden boat wow. during, the, uh, during the invasion and, and occupation of Seoul. And it took them three days to sail down to Jeju Island. And on Jeju Island, he was treated like a refugee, even in his own country, yep. and went to study his form masterless, without any master, on the heights of Mount Halasan, which is the highest mountain in Jeju Island, alone. Now, when we have to go through that type of thing, let's find out what it results, what the results are for us. Are we going to be with the same uh, social stamina, the same 
the perseverance and will that they had when they went through that type of thing. You know, uh, we have our own brand that we have to go through. This is one of them. This is our Mount Halasan. You know, this is our soul today going through these pandemics. 20, 30 years from now, one of your students will have a podcast, or who knows, a hologram. <laughs> you know, yeah. and, those, and the question will be, uh, how did, how did uh, your master, uh, how, how was he so great? You know, how did he manage to live through what he, and you'll be the one they're talking about. Because this is our time now. This yeah. is what we have to go through. This is what's molding our martial art right now. And how we deal with this is going to be a direct, direct result of what our students are going to look like, the complexion of our students in the years to come. Which, which I think is the, it's the number one responsibility that we have. And it goes back to the point that I made earlier on about, about representing our heritage, about not quitting because it has a reflection. If, if you were to quit, or I was to quit, it would be a direct reflection on, or a disrespect to what our teachers, our grandmasters had had went through. Uh, Grandmaster Cho talks about it as well, and, and it's documented about uh, going into the streets to literally find a bowl of rice. Mm -hmm. Most people, that is where perseverance and indomitable spirit is forged during those situations uh, i think it's i think it's 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 kind of you and it's very forward thinking uh, that we might one day be similar to them uh, i still struggle with the thought but i'll def we, we should definitely persevere to to try and achieve that that standard but i i look at someone like grandmaster i, I was in hawaii well, wasn't last year now because last year was was written off. That was a zip, yeah. Yeah, that was gone. Uh, but in 2019, November, he was uh, he would have been 79 at that stage and still teaching every class, mm -hmm. still hitting the bag, still running laps around the school. <laughs> it's just the 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 and you could tell very similar stories about. Grandmaster Chun, and they're, they're just, I feel, just very, very special, special individuals. I'll tell you, I'll tell you one good story about the resilience of Grandmaster Chun. This is yes, a please. good one, too. We were in, um, at the Kuki One. We were training there, and it was probably about 2014, maybe. And uh, he was an immaculate dresser. He oozed class. He would always have a three-piece suit on, you know, very fitted suits, expensive suits. And because we were meeting uh, Wanku Um, you know, uh, who was uh, one of the presidents of the Kuki One at the time, yep. or Wan Sik Kang, that's who we were meeting. Um, he was all dressed up, and I had my dobak on because we were training. Yep. And have you been to the Kuki One? Have you ever been there? I haven't, sir. Uh, I haven't even been to Korea. Which I want to talk about. Got, first of all, you have to go. We have to put a trip together when it's Absolutely. time is right. Please do. Yeah, that would be fantastic. Yeah. The, the connection you make there chronologically and geographically when you go is second to none. And also, 
It's a pilgrimage. That's the way I look at it. It's a yeah. pilgrimage. When you go to the Kukiwan, when you go to the Taekwondo-wan, but mainly the Kukiwan, you're going to one of the great cathedrals of Taekwondo. Yeah. It's this. Where it's an older building. It was built in 1972, as you know. And um, the stairways are very, very narrow, especially going down to the locker rooms. Okay. And there's steel, a steel stairway. So Grandmaster, I go down, and it's a quick 90-degree turn, and Grandmaster Chun is going down the steps, and he makes the turn, and he falls. Okay. His arms go out, and he lands flat on his back on the edge of a steel step. Yeah. Here, he was probably about 78 at the time. Yeah. Well, we panic. You know, we could see him breaking his spine at that point, you know. Yeah. And he looks around, shakes himself. He goes, I'm okay, I'm okay. And it's because of the way he fell, the way we're taught to roll and yeah. break the fall. He did that in slow motion, it looked like, in slow yeah. motion. Yeah, yeah. He did that. And a few minutes later, he was up. He had a big gash in his back from, from it. We took him to the first aid. He, they put some... Uh, you know, ointment on it and a bandage and things. 20 minutes later, he was back on the training floor with us. Yep. Yep. 79 years old, you know. So that's the type of resilience these men have, you know. And when we talk about these men, again, I wish we could include women in that. But yeah. They just weren't given the opportunity back then like they are now. You know? Yeah. One, 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 one last quick story. Uh, just before we move on to, to another subject that what chat to you about the, the, the last time that uh, Grandmaster Cho was in Europe. Uh, again, the opportunities that were given to me by his senior student, Grandmaster Darcy, uh, I can never repay that ever because he would he would allow me to tag on, on in most of the trips. And mm -hmm. you, get, you, you got access over breakfast or over dinner to sit and chat or even just listen to Grandmaster Cho talking, uh, and that's that's a debt that will never ever be repaid. That to me, that was invaluable. Uh, however, the, the the last time Grandmaster was here to to teach a seminar, and I can't remember whether it was the left shoulder or, or, or the right shoulder, but he was in so much pain with this shoulder injury, and Master Darcy spoke to him. At length throughout that sort of day of the seminar, I think, sir, be careful. You've got nothing to prove. Don't throw with this shoulder. Everybody's here. We're all going to learn from you. There's nothing you have to do. And yeah, 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 yeah. And I swear, <laughs> you know what's coming. He stepped on the stage that day and... <laughs> As soon as the seminar started, Basa, away he goes <laughs> with, with, with his shoulder. Uh, and it was just, just a, he's just a different type of individual. Uh, but yeah, okay. Uh, you know, you know, I understand what you're saying 100% because what happens is, and it happens to you and it happens to me, it happens to Master Ainslow, Master Darcy, I'm sure, Master Amherst, it happens to all of us. The second we dobok on, right? yeah. the second we tie that belt, and it's even before that, but this makes it official, stamp, you know, we get infected, but not infected with what the bad stuff is. We get infected with 
Taekwondo. Yeah. And it overrides everything else. Because how many times have you had aches and pains? Yeah. You know, coming to the dojang. I know that I, in Korea once I injured my shoulder, my left shoulder, very, very badly. To this day, it still is a problem. But when I get into class, that's it's not, not, not something to think about. Yeah. Let's say, let's, uh, there's, two, there's two areas that I still would love to touch on, and that is your visits to Korea and the, the books and the articles and what you've given back to the art through your writing. I really want to touch on that as well. Uh, but if we can touch on Korea, first of all, and maybe even start on your first visit there and just bringing together your experiences of, of going to the, the homeland of our, our wonderful... Yeah, it really is the homeland. You know, it's so funny. I laugh because the first time I went, I didn't sponsor that trip. I had just tacked on with a, another gr group of students that were going from the school that I first trained at. Yeah. And I call it the CIA trip because we would go there and it was a big secret. No one knew where we were staying. No one knew where we were going. We would be sleeping in these, what I call safe houses, like an apartment with no furniture in it. Yeah. It was very, uh, it was not organized, but we trained really, really well. I mean, it was some really brutal training, um, but I didn't really have any control over it, you know. But there was one instance where we went to a fit. I mean, one thing led to another. It was so confusing. But we one day we were there. It was the first day we got there, and we didn't sleep. We were awake for about 36 hours. Couldn't sleep on the plane. And we get there, and we're led to this huge fish market. I mean, it's the size of an airplane hangar, right? And they have every type of fish laid out that you can imagine, every type of seafood, from the littlest to the biggest. And most of it is moving still, right? Yeah. So the Grandmaster <laughs> points to this one bucket, and it's got all these little baby octopus in it, little tiny. Right? Yeah. And they scoop a bucket out, and they carry the bucket up this stairs to this roof section that's filthy. There's broken toilet bowls <laughs> and all sorts of things laying around and a table. So we go sit at the table. There's, a, several, there's about 10 of us and, and three or four other grandmasters from Korea. So they take these little octopus and they start throwing them on plates in front of us. And then he's still moving. And they come with a knife and they start chopping off the heads. And they say, okay, eat. You know, and, and half of the group said nothing doing. Me and the, another master, we said, we're going to eat everything they put in front of us. Yeah. We made that promise. Yeah. So we start eating these things with some kind of sauce on it. It was like fire. And we're eating them. You can feel them going down your throat, sucking on your throat as they go down. Right. Yeah. Well, they bring these green bottles and put them down in front of us. And I think, you know, 7-Up, you know this? Yeah, yeah, this yes, yeah. 7-Up, yeah. yeah. I figure that's what it is. So I grab it and start shooting it down. Well, wouldn't you know, it's soju. Oh, wow, okay. And you know what soju is, right? <laughs> I mean, soju, the, the Korean liquor. And that starts everything on fire. So yeah. my feeling was right from the beginning, they wanted to see what we can take and what we can't take. Indeed, know? yeah. That was the first trip, all right? After that, I was in charge of all the trips. <laughs> so either with Grandmaster Chun or myself, with my own organization. And these trips are, uh, again, what I call martial pilgrimages. 
because they're spiritual awakenings for the martial artists. That's truly what they are. You see, you see things, if you go in with your eyes and ears open, you see things differently than you typically would see them from the perspective of an everyday life, right? Even landscapes you see differently. It's almost like a mind-altering situation. Yeah. You have to prepare for that, for meditation, right? If you go to the, um, the famous uh, pilgrimage in France and Spain, the Camino, right? Mm -hmm. You walk the Camino. Uh, it's a pilgrimage. If you go to Lourdes, it's a pilgrimage. That's how serious I take these trips. So when I plan them, I plan them so that my students have comfort in great hotels. They have excellent food. We plot out the restaurants so they have excellent food. I get an, an English-speaking guide who is, is uh, conversant in the history of, of uh, Korea and often the history of Taekwondo as well. Okay, yeah. We hire luxury motor coaches so we get from one place to the other. And we don't just go to some place like m most tours do, where you go to a university and you stay there. They put you up in um, dormitory-like uh, surroundings where you know the bed is horrible and you have some terrible meals from time to time. You stay at the university and maybe you sightsee around the area and that's it. That's the yeah. trip. Our trips are training trips, right? We go to the Kuki one, we go to the Taekwondo one, we go to some place called the International Taekwondo. Uh, Kumgang Center. We go to Grandmaster Johan Lee's International World Taekwondo Instructor Academy. So we go and we go to all the to many of the temples high up in the mountains, like a movie. Yeah. Go go to temple and train there. So every day can, contains training. Yeah. And yes, we do leave time for shopping. We leave time for free time to to visit. You know, sightsee. Um, but when you come back, you are charged with training for a year or two, you know, yeah. and every memory and everybody you meet on board becomes your spiritual Taekwondo brother and sister, you know. Yeah. So the, the Korea tours that we do are, are uh, unique, they're singular. And in fact, many travel agencies contact me and say, how did you do this? How did you manage to, to do this? They ask me for my advice. And the tour guides are always saying, you're crazy. When we saw your itinerary, we thought you were joking. You really do want to train, you know? It's not yeah. just a sightseeing trip of Korea. So uh, I feel it's fundamental because you need to make a connection geographically. You need to make a connection with the masters there to see what we were just talking about earlier, yeah, yeah. you know, the type of attitude that they have. And they're tough. Mm -hmm. They're unforgiving. They brook no rest. You, you work hard, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, like one master on that we worked with at the, uh, the Kukiwan. And, uh, uh, and you make a chronological connection when we go to the museums and you see the history of Taekwondo. Yeah. Uh, you know, we charge generally about uh, $4,500, all inclusive. Okay. Air travel, hotels, everything, you know, yeah. just one fare. And while that might seem like a lot of money, when people come back, they go, I don't know how you did it. You know, how did you fit all that in for that type of price? You know, yeah. so we try to make it worthwhile financially for our students. And these are always open to everybody worldwide who wants to come. We've had students from all over the world join us. But I feel that a trip to Korea is, is really essential, at least one. Yeah. And we've just completed our ninth. And, you know, and probably when this pandemic blows over and we have a little bit more breathing room, literally, yeah. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll go back again, you know.
Yeah, uh, it's definitely, uh, it has to be on the, the bucket list, of course. It, it has to be. Uh, yeah, okay, wonderful. The, the, the other thing that I, I do want to talk to you about is, is because you're, you're not just for your books that you've written uh, on Taekwondo, but you're a prolific writer of articles, uh, reports, etc., for a, a number of different publications. Uh, you obviously enjoy it and it's a calling, but uh, is there a particular reason that you, you wanted to, or what drew you to becoming an author about Taekwondo as well? Uh, you know, there's a saying in academia, it goes, publish or perish. Okay, yep. You know, and uh, because, as I said earlier, that I look at Taekwondo more than just the physical part, I look at it as the triad of academic, spiritual, and physical, you know. I feel that in order to call yourself a master of the art, uh, you need to contribute uh, in an editorial or literary way as well. If you're able to, not everybody's able to write. Now, fortunately, I've loved to write since I guess I was about 12 years old, you know. I used to use different things. I used to write uh, scientific papers for my science class, you know, yep, yep. things like this. But um, I don't know that it's that I feel I have so much to say about Taekwondo that I'm, I feel compelled to write about it. I just feel that it, it's uh, something channels me to write. You know, yeah. I feel like maybe Grandmaster Chun is telling me right. what to write. And in fact, he used to ask me to write his speeches for him. He said, even, even there was one time he was supposed to speak at a, a, a marriage. And he said, you need to write the marriage speech for me. And he would say, Doug, you'll get inside my head. You, you're, my words are your words, you know. So um, I feel that connecting with people who like to read helps them through Taekwondo writing, you know, through yeah. writing. And I have no shortage of words. I mean, you can hear right now, maybe I'm too effusive. I, maybe I should compact what I'm saying. Not at all, not at all. Less, more, you know, to less. But I, I the, the feedback I get from my readers, you know, whether it be Taekwondo Times or Totally Taekwondo Magazine with Master Ainslow, who I think is doing a great service. Yeah. Master Stuart Ainslow, is one of the saints of Taekwondo. That's yeah. what I think. Because first of all, he's persevered through all these issues that he's had. I think he's up to 145 or something like this now. Yeah. Um, I've been writing for him since 2009 every month because I want to support him. Um, and he's managed to do that. And he's managed to do it by staying faithful to Taekwondo. Yeah. Almost never do you see an article in there that doesn't have to do with Taekwondo. Yeah. Today, the magazines that say Taekwondo, whatever, whatever, judo, everything is in there, right? I am a purist when it comes to Taekwondo. I want to know about Taekwondo. Yeah. I don't care if it's ITF, W2F, AIMMEEAA. -E I don't care, you know, as long as it's Taekwondo, you know. Yeah. And he gives us that outlet. Same thing with Hunlian Magazine, you know. Yeah. So... Um, the writers, the, the readers write back to me and they say, you know, I was expecting the same old, same old from your books and they're not. They feel like you're talking directly to me. Um, and as far as I feel, as long as I can keep writing, I will. I just submitted uh, the manuscript for my fifth book to my publisher the other day. Yep, yep. 
<clears throat> hopefully they'll they'll like it because you know that's the way I like to work. I want to be published by a real publisher, not self-published. I, mm -hmm. I prefer to be accepted and reviewed by my peers. Have a group of editors work on it, so when it comes out, you know everything is correct. Mm -hmm. um, that's that's the way I like to do it. And um, again, as long as I can continue writing, I will. You know. Can you give us uh, a little exclusive about what the new book? Might possibly. Yeah, I'll be glad to, sure. Uh, yeah, and I'll tell you even a little bit of a story about it, too, because, uh, uh, geez, I, it must have been about, nine, about 2000, uh, maybe 2014, around then, 2015, Grandmaster Chun and I were at a Mediterranean restaurant enjoying a really nice lunch once. And he said to me, I think that it's time for us to write another book. You know, because we had just written... Uh, Taekwondo Black Belt Plumse, original choreo and choreo. And uh, I said, really? Okay, great. You know, what, you have any ideas what you want it to be about? You know, and he said, yeah, this book is going to be different. It's going to be mainly, it's not going to be about technique. It's not going to be about kicking or forms or things like that. It's going to be uh, a group of essays, you know, on the philosophy of Taekwondo, and then a section about Plumse, about its history and its importance in Taekwondo, and then we're going to harvest all our memories from our trips to Korea and what we did and what we learned during those times, you know, with pictures and things like this. Wonderful. And I said, wow, that sounds good. You know what I'm saying? He had this mission look in his eye like a child. You know, he was so excited, you know. And I said, well, do you have a name for the book, you know? And he said, mm, I do, you know. And he called it The Eden of Taekwondo. Oh, wow. Okay. Eden of Taekwondo, like the Garden of Eden. Of course, know? yep, yep. And um, so, unfortunately, while we were playing around with it, he became sick and he, you know, ultimately passed away. And for a year or two, I just couldn't bring myself to work on it. And then I said, no, this is, I have to do this. I have to write this book. So I went ahead and added some things that I know he would be very proud of and, and uh, completed it. Uh, put it all together, and I said, New Year's is going to be my deadline. I set my deadline in September. Yeah. New Year's came, I finished it, and it went off to my publisher the other day. Brilliant. If they go for it, you know, if they find it's viable, uh, sometime in the next year, the Eden of Taekwondo will grace the racks again. You know? Fantastic. Fantastic. Uh, Grandmaster Mires, who we've mentioned a number of times, I... I haven't met anybody with such an encyclopedic mind of martial arts publications. And if there's a book on Taekwondo or any martial art, that man has it. Uh, and he speaks very highly of the books that you've published. Uh, he always has done of, of all, the, all the stuff that you've published. Uh, and he's read them all and, and has them all probably. Uh, so no, the the... the the books and the articles, uh, I primarily see you in uh, Master Anslow's uh, magazine, and it's, it's always quality stuff. It's always quality stuff. Uh, okay, sir, I think we're, we're nearing the end now. Uh, what I would love is, and I always put people under pressure when I ask this, but I know you'll produce. Uh, can you leave us just with a, a bit of a positive message or... A little bit of encouragement for moving forward through the next. Certainly, 
few months. Yes, absolutely. And it's not hard because, you know, again, what we do is so good for people in general, physically, mentally. Uh, what we do is a Taekwondo is a lifeboat on troubled seas. That's what it is. We're going through a tumultuous time right now. But you, me, all the masters that we spoke about earlier are in this lifeboat. We're at the helm, and we have our arms down, pulling people out of the water, yes. reaching for them and holding them, right, and keeping them safe. That sea will even out someday. I, I can, I'm, I'm not prescient. I can't tell you when that will be, but I'm confident that it's not going to be too long from now. Yeah. with the vaccines going around the world and things like this. And I can tell you that those of us who stay with us, those of us who persevere through these difficult times, some of the most difficult that I hope that we will ever see in our lifetimes, will be so proud of themselves that they stayed with, and I'm talking about our Taekwondo people, yeah. you know, will be so proud that they stayed and got through this. Um, we have, I don't have one here, but we have a special patch that we made. It's called the Perseverance Patch. Yep. And it has a fist, and it's a blue and a red on top, and a little square. And I gave it to all my students to wear as a badge to remind them, when times are better, what they've gone through, right? So Grandmaster Chun had an axiom. He had three words that he lived by. And I believe in it. And we said, oh, may I have that? Oh, thank you very much. My wife just handed me that. Yeah. Uh, well, we had shirts made, but that's the patch right there. Fantastic, yeah. And um, uh, he had three words that he believed in, and, and I live by them. And we say them at the end of every class now, and it's never give up. Yeah. Yeah. Never give up, you know. And uh, if we can live by those words, not just mouth them, but live by them, right, uh, we have hope. And I, I, I'm confident we'll get through this, but it, it, there's still scary times ahead. Uh, but we have the wherewithal. We have the ally of, pers of uh, indomitable will and uh, perseverance to help us get through, you know? Mm -hmm. I, I feel very strongly about that. Grandmaster Cook, you are a gentleman and a scholar, sir. It's been, it's been a total treat. Uh, as, as, as many of the episodes have been for me, it's just it's given me this wonderful opportunity to, to chat to people like yourself. Uh, I can't thank you enough for coming on it's been really really special thank you so much for asking me and you have a beautiful family and uh, please you, give sir. them my best i will for sure i will for sure okay sir thank you and uh, hopefully i'll get to chat to you sooner rather than later okay thank you sir and give my respect to your master please absolutely master absolutely okay bye sir thank you come thank tell you. me that thank you sir